You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, happy Labor Day, and thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, if you've been following along at laborunionnews.com for the last 18 months or so, you know that we publish articles across the political spectrum covering unions from left-leaning publications to right-leaning publications and everywhere in between. And I say this because we like to put out all of the information and let the readers see what's being covered in the news, regardless of what, quote, side of the table they sit on. So although a lot of what we aggregate and publish comes from the mainstream outlets that cover union news, we also publish articles from lesser known outlets and from unions themselves. I mentioned this to you as it relates to the recent UPS negotiations and the contract that was recently reached. Now, if you're a subscriber to laborunionnews.com or if you've visited the website over the last several months, you know that earlier in the summer, we devoted an entire news category on the site to the Teamsters and their negotiations at UPS. And to date, we've published... Mm, close to 240 articles on that topic alone. Since the contract was agreed to and then later ratified, while much of the news coverage was laudatory towards the Teamsters' new contract, there was one outlet that seemed to be contrarian and urging members to vote down the tentative contract and even questioning the legitimacy of the ratification itself. Now, WSWS.org is a website that I've been following for more than a decade because they have a tendency to publish issues that most reporters who cover labor news don't cover. And WSWS.org, for those of you who don't know it, stands for World Socialist Website. And although they cover the socialist movement from across the globe or around the globe, On union issues here in the United States, they often talk to rank-and-file workers and share what's really happening on the ground, and they go through contracts and parse them out, so to speak. So to that end, the only outlet that seems to have taken this contrarian view of the Teamsters contract at UPS has been WSWS.org. Well, a couple of Fridays ago, they published another article about the Teamsters' quote, sellout deal, at UPS, and I decided to email the rank and file email address that was given in the article to find out if they'd have anyone who could come onto the podcast to explain their point of view. And to be honest, I wasn't sure as we were emailing back and forth whether or not I would have a WSWS.org writer on or a rank and file Teamster coming on. However, it turned out to be the latter. So last Thursday evening, when I was out on the road, I was joined by Jared, who also, by the way, goes by the name of Jay, who is a UPS employee and a rank-and-file Teamster who is able to come on the podcast in the evening and share some of the opinions about the latest Teamster contract at UPS from the rank-and-file. So here's Jared or Jay. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. 
Well, Jay, it is an honor to have you on Labor Relations Radio. Thanks for coming on on a Thursday evening. Yeah, uh, no, no problem, Peter. It's, it's nice to be here. I appreciate the invite. So for the listeners, can you give a little bit of background? And I, I know you don't necessarily want to give a lot of background, but, you know, just who you are and a little bit about what you do. Well, um, my name is Jay. I've, I've been with UPS for over two decades. Um, you know, I've worked in both sides of the, uh, the ground and air district. And so I've had a, a lengthy, you know, career at this point. I've went through several contractual negotiations and, um, you know, I've always taken an interest uh, since I've been with UPS and kind of the labor movement and contractual negotiations and, you know, kind of how they roll out and how they, they change over time in accordance with leadership. And then sometimes they change and then sometimes they don't. Sometimes you have more of the same. And so that's a little bit of, of my history as far as UPS. Obviously, we just went through, you know, a, a major, major contract that sets the course for the next five years. So you're considered a UPS rank and filer, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and rank and file for the listeners who may not know uh, is somebody who's on the ground, so to speak, member of the union, et cetera, right? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we are, you know, a rank and file committee. Um, there are, seven, you know, several of them, uh, you know, all over, all over the U.S. and abroad. And so... You know, our positioning is, um, you know, we're actual rank and file members. Um, you know, we, we do the job every day. Uh, we understand the nature of the job. We understand how it's changed over time. Um, and so we try to position ourselves as, you know, the, the individuals, the men and women that are actually performing the job on an everyday basis. Um, you know, we are the ones out there that are, you know, actually performing the work and, um, you know, no matter what. I mean, UPS is a place that pretty much never stops, uh, you know, multiple shifts, weekends, nights, inclement weather, you name it. Um, the rank and file is, is basically exactly what it, you know, what we say it is. It's, it's rank and file members all across the country and, you know, we've kind of networked together. Uh, over time and um, collaborated and in, in kind of trying to get our message out and given the the true scenario that is going on with UPS and the IBT currently. Sometimes people joke, you never see a UPS person going slow. Everybody's always <laughs> running. Um, there used to be a joke and back in the old days, you never see an old UPSer either, mm -hmm. but... Right. The, well, that's what we call the sense of urgency, right? Right. I mean, we're, we're constantly, you know, fighting time. And so, you know, in an industry where time matters, I mean, we, you know, the, the employees, we like to pride ourselves on our efficiency. And I think if you, if you look at UPS compared to other logistical providers, you know, we're, we're the best of the best. We know how to get the job done. Um, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, in the middle of rain, sleet, snow, you know, we are out there performing the job and, you know, being as efficient as possible. And, you know, lots of people love their, 
their UPS delivery guy. That means you know something right, right. something is coming uh, that they need, or they're shipping something out that they need to to get somewhere. And you know, the rank and file committee and and the members of it. I mean, we take a lot of pride in what we do. So one of the reasons I mentioned before I hit the record button that I wanted to reach out to somebody is obviously you just went through contract negotiations and I, I, you may know the answer to this. I'm not sure I do, but I believe UPS has been unionized by the Teamsters for close to a hundred years or maybe over. You know, I, I, I think you're, you're right there. I don't know the, you know, the exact timeline, but I know, you know, the IBT and UPS have a lengthy history. Um, you know, there's, there's many contracts that they've done together and, um, you know, they are very much almost one in the same sometimes in, right. in, a, in a certain fashion. So they're, uh, they're very knowledgeable of, of how each other negotiates. And I would, I would also say that, um, you know, both sides have a very strong understanding of the industry. And so a, a lot of, a lot of times, you know, the facilitation of, of these contractual ag- agreements, you know, you, d- you don't get the real scoop in- unless you're actually talking to a rank and file member. Right. Which is the reason I reached out. So, I, and I mentioned we, there are so many news articles coming out during the negotiations, the lead up to the contract expiration, the potential strike, et cetera. And, but most of them were just the same articles from a different angle yet it was the wsws.org articles where you could start seeing glimpses of okay here's what's happening behind the scenes but nobody else was really talking about it and correct me if i'm wrong there was a big um, effort to have folks once the most recent final offer was presented to vote no to the contract and I and so I wasn't seeing other than at WSWS what was the issue of why this contract, I guess why it was cracked up to be more than it actually is. I don't well, know if that's the right way to say that, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, Peter, I, I think the big thing is you know the vote new, no movement has been around for for quite some time. I mean, I, I've been with UPS over two decades. Um, I came in right as there was a uh, transition of power um, coming out of that 97 strike from Ron Carey to right. Hoffa, Hoffa Jr. And so, you know, if, if you dive into like the 2018 and even the 2013 contracts, you know, those, those contracts were heavily voted down by the membership. And so the vote no campaign was much about those contracts that were like forced down the membership's throats just as well as this contract. I mean, we're coming off decades of concessionary contracts. And so the vote no movement uh, within the rank of file is to, you know, basically state what the real issues are out there. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of, of the UPS employees, um, you know, nationwide, you know, they were very eager to uh, see what, you know, Sean O'Brien was going to bring to the table along with Fred Zuckerman. And what they got was a heavy dose of, of the same. 
And, um, you know, when, when you're negotiating for 350,000 people, um, you know, there's a lot on the line there. there. You know, livelihoods can can be affected both positively or, you know, negatively. And so what we were looking for was a big win. And, you know, the rank and file committee and a lot of, you know, just regular everyday men and women that are working there, um, you know, it, it doesn't address the, the root problems of, of what we have going on at UPS. And, you know, a lot of that has to do, you know, with conditions, uh, harassment by, you know, management, um, the part-time workforce. I mean, you're talking about, you know, 60% of UPS is ran by part-time labor. And so, you know, if you go back in a historical context, you know, early 60s, uh, you know, Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters introduced this new, you know, type of worker, and it was the part-time worker. And so, you know, they did that for a number of reasons. I mean, number one, it was, you know, very strategic for UPS. And number two, it was, you know, very strategic for the IBT as far as increasing um, their membership over time. And so, that has been carried along ever since. Um, you know, and if you look at at UPS, kind of, you know, in the late '70s when they're when they're really, you know, starting to grow, and you take that seven dollar and seventy five cent um, pay rate that they were doing, basically part time workers were making just as much as the drivers. And then we get into the 1980s, and they totally slash, you know, the part time wage, and then you know the the hiring of mass amounts of part-timers to do the job and, you know, trying to basically claw out full-time jobs has been a problem. And so the ratio between part-time workers and full-time workers has pretty much been consistent for the last 25 years. So I have a couple questions, um, and I think I know the answer to one of them, but let me just ask it anyway. For a part-time worker, you mentioned that, you know, it brought in more dues for the union. Do they pay the same amount of dues as the full-time worker? Uh, no, they don't. It's it's based off of, um, you know, I believe in our center, it's uh, two and a half times your hourly wage. That's for full-time or part-time? Part-time. Okay, so what is it for a full-timer? Um, full-time, I think, is basically... Not quite three times your hourly wage, but about two and a half times as well. But okay. as a full-time employee, you're, you're obviously making more. So if, if the company can expand or the union can expand the number of part-time workers processing this out, it's actually about the same equivalent in terms of dues as the, if you had a full-time worker, right? So yeah. I'm getting more people as opposed to the same dues of less people full time. Does that make sense? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. And then the other question is when you say part time, is that people who are working, you know, two days a week or five days a week at two hours a day or what do you mean? Well, most of the most of the part time, you know, depending on center and how they negotiate their riders, uh, aside from the national contract, but you know, most of it's based on guarantees. And so, you know, in our center, you basically have a three-hour guarantee, a six-hour guarantee, eight-hour guarantee, 10-hour guarantee. Now, with the last contract, they're supposed to be moving that up to a three-and-a-half 
hour guarantee. And so, you know, when you really think about part-time, you're thinking of, you know, full-time being 40 hours a week. And, you know, a lot of these workers are, they're not getting that. They're, they're getting, you know, three, maybe four hours a day. Right now, you know, the, the, total, the total hours that they are getting are very reduced right now. Okay. And, and so part-timers, if you don't have a full-time guarantee right now, I mean, you're, you're absolutely getting slammed as far as hours. I mean, you, you're getting the bare minimum. Um, you know, and that wax and wanes over time, but, you know, I think probably, you know, we're going to see a lot more of those guarantees to be held true to what they are. And you're going to see, you know, three and a half an hour. And you mentioned there's about 60% of the workforce is part-time. Yes. Now, what I did see was that there's, and again, this is probably through one of the WSWS articles, that they're supposedly moving in the new contracts, I want to say it's 10,000 or 7,000 from part to full-time. Is that yeah, the, the agreement, right? Yeah, the agreement was um, 7,500 uh, full-time jobs. So, you know, I think if you just use the number 170,000, let's just say there's 170,000 part-time workers at UPS, um, 7,500 jobs basically constitutes about 4%. And so, you know, that's going to be done over five years. Uh, mm. You know, most of those will be, uh, you know, backfilled on the, the back end of the contract. And so, you know, for a company, for a huge multinational corporation that takes in, you know, about $100 billion a year, and that is exponentially growing, especially, you know, um, during COVID and, and the pandemic, um, you know, their, their profit margins just, greatly increased. And I think that's a little bit, you know, disappointing to long-term part-timers is, you know, what, what they really felt was this was going to open them up for the ability to move to part, uh, to part, to, I mean, full-time. And so with 7,500 jobs, you know, I just don't feel like that's enough for the amount of, you know, time a lot of these part-timers have. I mean, literally you have people in, in what we call career part-time positions. I mean, they've been there over 20 years. Right. And I got to imagine the attrition rate is pretty high as well. People quitting oh, I, or leaving oh, or whatever. Absolutely. I mean, the turnover within the first year is, is, you know, huge. And if you look at the numbers, you know, of the part-timers, I mean, probably five years or less, you're probably looking at, you know, over a hundred thousand. Right. And do the part-timers get full benefits or is it part-time benefits? You know, they do. Um, they have to work, I think, um, I think three months, anywhere between three and six months, and then they start getting their benefits package. So it's the same benefits as a full-timer? It is. Okay. Yeah, that wasn't sure how that worked. So the other issue that I saw in a couple articles, at least through WSWS, was now if you read the normal media, it was this very rich contract and, you know, there's people going to make $170,000 in total compensation and things like that. But then in the WSWS articles, it was more parsed out in that there are increases there, but they were already at that level due to market adjustments. Is that accurate or sound accurate? Sure. I mean, what, what, 
what UPS was was campaigning on was very much of their top rate driver position. And so, you know, you have guys that have gone through their progression. Uh, you know, they started out part time. You know, they loaded trucks, feeder trucks, and package car, and then they get a you know a full time driver position, and then they go through you know basically four years to where they they top out. I mean, what they're not telling you is is you know, they probably went through five to 10 before they went through that four-year progressionary state. And so I think top-rated drivers, you know, going through um, going through the 2023 contract was about 42 bucks. And so now the top rate is going to be $49 an hour plus, you know, pension and, and benefits. And so that's probably how they come up with that $170,000 number. But, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is how much these guys and, and ladies are, are working in the package cars. I mean, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 hours a day uh, with peak season, November and December, it's, it's even longer. This is a, this is a very grueling position. And right. that's uh, that constant running you see. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just you know a sense of urgency. They're under a ton of scrutiny. Um, you know those those drivers can get you know fired for you know too many wrong turns. Um, you know they're under basically their surveillance in the trucks, and um, that that is not an easy position to have. And so, you know what UPS is promoting is you know the full-time package car that's reached package car driver that's reached top rate you know there's a lot that have just started they're in progression they start at 23 bucks an hour so and that's with this new contract as far as the mras are concerned the market rate adjustments are those are you know uh have a lot to do with what they call inside workers and these are people that are are within the warehouses and um you know, loading tractor trailers, loading um, ULD devices that go on aircraft. And so what UPS had to do is they had to go out there and attract people to come and work for them. And because their wages, um, you know, just they, they weren't drawing, you know, any type of numbers to, to get them in the door. And so they had to do those market rate adjustments. Um, a lot of those, I think, throughout the country were anywhere from like $21 to $23. And so that's a huge talking point right now, Peter, is because, you know, what we're finding out and information that we're getting fed right now from all over the country is a lot of those MRAs are getting taken away. And so, um, you know, we'll see, we'll still have to see how the next couple of weeks roll out, roll out just because it's it's newly ratified, but you know, that was one of the things the Teamsters were, were ac actually trying to, you know, push as far as selling this contract is you're going to keep your MRA, your market rate adjustment, and then you are going to go into the raises. And so we'll, we'll see how that pans out. Um, you know, the feedback we're getting right now um, is that a lot of those MRAs got taken away. And so these individuals are staying at $21 an hour. So let me ask to clarify this just a little bit. The, the old contract, the 2018 contract, had a whatever the top rate was for the inside work. And 
due to the fact that they couldn't attract people, they raised the wages through the market adjustments above the contract. Is that right? Yeah, the, the starting wages, which I think were like, you know, $17 or something like that. And so what they what they had to do to attract new employees is they had to do that market rate adjustment. Above the and contract so, rate, right? Yes, above okay. the contract rate. And so that's that's kind of the thing where we're kind of waiting to see how it rolls out right now. We do have information coming that people are losing their market rate adjustment and they're taking them down you know, to, you know, what they would start it at, out or what their raises would have been for, let's just say one year, one year, one year, two, year three. And so they're going to be stuck at $21. So you've got people actually pretend, potentially losing money. Sure. The hourly wage rate. Okay. Sure. Sure. That's interesting. And, and, you know, like I said, I mean, this is just newly ratified. And so, right. you know, it takes a while for, um, you know, payroll to catch up sometimes, but it would be a huge blow, number one, to UPS, but number two, it would be a huge blow to the IBT if people actually lose their MRAs, you know, across the entire network, and then they just get set at $21 an hour. And then year two, it'll go up to whatever, but they're just setting people as the contract rate. Sure. Allegedly, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the other, I guess it was uh, out of the Louisville hub that I saw that they're already at 23 or 23.50 or whatever the amount was. And that's where the, again, I'm, I'm using the WSWS articles as kind of my source information on this because it's, you know, it's totally different than what you're seeing in the mainstream media. Well, as far as different different centers, I mean, those market rate adjustments are, are different, whether it's in, in Louisville or Rockford, Illinois, or Seattle, yeah. Washington. I mean, those, uh, depending upon the cost of living, you know, are probably adjusted accordingly. And so, you know, we're still waiting for, you know, a lot of feedback to come in. But I can tell you that we are, you know, getting a lot of information out there that, People are losing money at this point, and they're getting set at $21 an hour. Can that be adjusted? Sure, it could. But, you know, it was, you know, the IBT basically guaranteed that people would keep their market rate adjustment and then go into the new raises. Right. The ratification process, and that was one of the the last big articles I saw um, from WSWS was there's some concerns about how the contract was being ratified or the number of, of people that actually voted. I believe it said, uh, maybe this was the team just saying 58% voted for the ratification. And of course, I think it was 87% approved the contract, but there's some skepticism that I saw about the ratification process. Well, I mean, there, you know, Basically, you had a, uh, you know, 162 locals across the country that heavily endorsed this contract. And so one of the things that the rank and file committee does is we, we monitor, you know, a lot of the noise out there. We look at social media, you know, um, posts, you know, there, there are a lot of social media groups and the vote no campaign was pretty strong. And in fact, if you look a lot at a lot of those social media groups and posts, I mean, we could probably say it was 60, 40, no. But what the IBT came out with was that, you know, voting numbers were up at 58%. And, 
you know, basically the national contract passed at 86%. And so, you know, it's the way that the vote was, you know, conducted. And so basically what they did is, um, you know, they sent out ballots in the mail. It had a QR code. You could punch that QR code and vote yes or no, but that QR code could have been changed several times. You could change it back and forth. You could change it back from yes to no, yes to no. How many times? We're not, you know, very sure, but I know as far as the validation of the vote, you know, you had five individuals that basically, you know, sat over that vote, and that was President Sean O'Brien, General, uh, General Secretary Treasurer Fred Zuckerman, two rank-and-file um, members of, um, you know, different locals around the country, and then the ballot point president. So you had five people. And so, you know, from our perspective, where's the oversight? Right. And it was all computerized. And it was all computerized. So if you did the QR code, presumably somehow shot straight to Washington and where they counted the ballots there, the tallies were, you know, going to Washington? I, be I believe so. I okay. believe so. Um, but I do know that, you know, five individuals basically signed off on that ballot point system. No, nobody from outside. And so it was all internally with the IBT and then also a ballot point representative, which I think was their president and CEO. So, you know, when you're, when you're conducting voting, that's been a major topic uh, the last few years, you know, is, um, you know, voting and voting discrepancies. Um, right. You know, we, we, we get, um, you know, emails from, from individuals that never even received a ballot. You know, I talked to two two young workers today that never even received a ballot in the mail. One of them, you know, called their, their um, local and asked for a ballot to be mailed to them and they never received it. So, you know, there are discrepancies, um, you know, getting an 86 or 87% yes vote. It's hard to get almost nine out of 10 people to agree on anything. And so that's where, you know, I think there's a little suspicion raised is, you know, how the vote took place, the ability to change the vote back and forth and the oversight. Well, let me let me ask you, you touched on this a little while ago in the history with the different presidents of the Teamsters. And, you know, it went from Ron Carey to Hoffa Jr., James P. Hoffa. Um, and he was in there for about 20 years. And the the process in which ratification votes took place and this is, of course, Wall Street Journal and every other news outlet back in 2018. The members basically had the, the contract shoved down their throats because the majority, and correct me if I'm wrong, I want to say it was like 54% of the UPS voters in the 2018 contract voted to reject it, but there's the two-thirds rule, right? Yes, yes, there was. And, and so basically... Basically, the you know that's where the um, the international came came in and basically you know ratified that that contract without you know the membership being in favor of it, and that happened I think also in 2013 as well. Oh, really? Okay, see, I didn't remember that. I don't know where I was in 2013. I should have remembered that. But so as a result of that, the Constitution was changed in 2021. Yes. So it's a simple majority either way. Yes. Right? 
you know, majority either accept it, majority reject it. Now, Sean O'Brien, and I guess I'm a little confused because Sean O'Brien was part of the Hoffa regime, if you will, for years, right? He was at the table last time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I think there, I think there was maybe some internal conflict there. Um, obviously, um, you know, when I think Veerman out of Colorado was uh, Hoffa's, you know, handpicked successor, and then Sean O'Brien and then Fred Zuckerman paired up, and then they ended up winning. You know that that election, the voter turnout there wasn't wasn't great. I think 14% even voted in that election, but they did win it. Yeah, that was an interesting pair up because Zuckerman, I believe, came from the TDU, right? Yes. And O'Brien wasn't necessarily a TDU guy. No, I mean, not not to my knowledge. And, you know, I, I think that was very much a pairing to where, you know, they felt like if they did pair with each other, that basically it was uh, it was theirs to lose. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, just outsider looking in, it appeared I kind of followed Sean O'Brien for years, you know, through the press and stuff and figured he would be, you know, one of the guys at some point to, to take over as I've been watching, you know, every time the TDU put somebody up and the Hoffa regime would, you know, somehow win. I think mm-hmm. if I recall the last election before this past one was uh, if it was just left to the U S locals, like, Throughout the Teamsters, Hoffa actually lost in the U.S., and then it was Canada that pushed him over the top, if I recall. Sure, and I think that was against Zuckerman, you know, and I think you're yeah. exactly right. I think uh, I think Hoffa pulled that one out by, you know, a few thousand votes, and most of them came from Canada. Right. And then, so the new constitutional changes, which, you know, simple majority either way of the voters on ratification— they also changed the strike pay thing, right? In terms of waiting two weeks, now you get paid the first day of a strike, if I recall. I believe they did change a little bit of, of the strike pay in there, but I don't think it was full pay. And so if you have, you know, if you have a lot of part-timers out there, um, you know, that's, that's you know, basically going to deplete them very, very quickly. Right. Okay, that's interesting because I thought it was a formula of five times your dues rate or something was the new strike pay starting on the first day. So what I found interesting about that is it used to be in most unions, my own included way back when, you'd have to be out on strike for two weeks to collect strike pay. And then pushing it up to the first day, it, it literally depletes your strike fund two weeks earlier than it would have been had it you know, waiting two weeks, et cetera. And you're still collecting your last paycheck before you walked out. And I was just thinking about it mathematically and actually ran the numbers. And I was like, wow, they only have enough money for however many weeks, but it's 882 or $862 per striker. If it's 300 or 340,000 people out. Sure. I was just, I was just from a mathematical standpoint, I was like, why did they do that? But, yeah, you know, but you also got to look, Peter, as, you know, they had 97% strike authorization. Right. And so, you know, the the membership was prepared to strike UPS. And the, and the reason for that was pretty simple. 
you know, the 2018 contract, which, you know, basically shoved down the memberships, memberships throat. They had had, you know, decades of concessionary contracts. You know, the part-time ratio is, is really not changing. You know, if, if you get into the, the true economics of, of this contract and, you know, they like to promote that $7.50 wage increase. But, you know, if you, if you look at, let's just say, 1978, you know, part-timers, full-timers are making the same, $7.75 an hour. If you convert that to, to today's dollars, you're looking at $37 an hour. And so with them hiring new hires in it at 21, and, and you look at, you know, basically, you know, the pension numbers, even with pension increases, you know, by the end of this contract, you're going to lose, you know, somewhere between 10 and 12% of purchasing power. And I think, you know, coming from the working class and, and, and being blue collar, purchasing power is such a, a big, big issue. And if we look at that, you know, just from the last, you know, 40 years uh, of what's going on as far as, you know, how you make a dollar stretch, there's a big problem. And, and what is happening is, is basically, you know, the, the blue collar middle class worker, I mean, their purchasing power is being eroded over time. And, you know, I think that when you look at the economics of this contract, that is the big, that is the big issue is, you know, a lot of people, you know, don't take the inflation, inflationary data into consideration. And, and, you know, there's even questions of how that is even measured. You know, I've heard that they take a basket of goods and then they, you know, they run the, the numbers off those goods, whether they're increasing or decreasing. But if you just look at the price of energy, what you pay at the gas pump, um, the consumer price index, you know, as far as goods, grocery items, rent around the country. How many part-time jobs do you need to sustain your way of, you know, to to sustain a, a way of life to where you're you're basically, you know, being able to afford anything? And so what we see is we see basically corporate profits increasing uh, very rapidly. And they did with UPS during during COVID and the pandemic. And then, you know, basically the raises that that are being given are not keeping up with the purchasing power. And so I think, you know, the rank and file committee talks about this all the time. I mean, you have to look at the data. You have to look at the economics of the package. They said, hey, you know, the IBT said, look, this is, you know, the biggest, richest contract we've ever had. Well, you got about 50,000 more workers. Why shouldn't it be? I mean, you know, if, if, we're, if we're throwing a lot more laborers in, into, the, into the pie, then of course it's going to be larger than the last one. But, you know, what are we, what are we really gaining? You know, if you, if you get, if you make $21 an hour to start out and you're getting three and a half, you know, hours a day, I mean, just crunch the numbers real quick. You take taxes and union dues out of that. What are you bringing home? 1200 bucks a month. Right. And, and so look, you know, part-time wages, you know, 
um, and wages overall, they have to go up. We can't, and this is more of a, you know, a government thing. We can't continually, you know, continue to print money and then the working force gets slapped with the consequences of all that basically irrational monetary policy that we have going on. And that's what happens. That's who hit, that's who gets hit the most. Right. The inflationary, you know, um, environment that we have going on right now is, is no, it's, it's a tax and it's a tax on everyday people. And, you know, if you talk to people enough, you know, it's the same thing. People are working hard. You're, you know, they're working a couple jobs. They're working overtime. If, if that's even possible, they, you know, they, the new thing is the side hustle. Uh, people are, are getting into, you know, all these, you know, different arenas and, and they're doing that because they absolutely have to, um, you know, it's, it's getting harder and harder to, um, do anything, whether that's, you know, buy a house, rent an apartment, buy it, you know, a, a nice used car to get back and forth to, to work with. But, you know, there's, there's a huge problem going on right now, you know, in the United States and abroad. And, and that's the hollowing out of, of the middle class and, you know, almost, you know, creating, you know, what is a two class structure. And that's, you know, those at the very top and those at the very bottom. Well, let me ask you a question. This may not be a fair question. I'm asking for speculation, but you mentioned a minute ago that 97% of the membership was ready to strike. Why is it, do you think, that Sean O'Brien didn't pull you out and and stick to the guns of, you know, even if it was a week or two, to try to get you know, a better deal? I don't, I, I don't think he ever really had the... Um had the intention of striking. I think what we, we basically saw with, with President O'Brien was, um, you know, a militant stance and basically saying, you know, going around the country, going on, you know, television and saying, you know, August 1st, we're going to strike him. But he crossed several red lines leading up to that. The first, you know, red line was all the locals have to be done. You know, all 70, uh, 176 riders and, um, you know, they had to be done before we even started to to um, negotiate the national. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there was two of them uh, that were that were being held up. I believe Louisville, Kentucky was one. And then I think there was a um, Illinois? I'm not, maybe Illinois. There was a second one that was holding up. And then, you know, he came back and said he had got a letter from those locals, you know, urging him to go on with national negotiations. And then. You know, we went the you know back and forth with the emotional roller coaster with the membership. As you know, UPS came with you know just a subpar offer, and we we get up and we walk out, and um, you know then negotiations are stalled, and um, I think I think it was like he was giving them until um, like the beginning of July or something like that um, to come back. And, um, you know, they, they ended up getting back. It still wasn't where they needed to be. Um, I think they went through, you know, the July 4th, uh, weekend of the July 4th, and then they went back to the table, you know, the following Tuesday. And this is after, um, you know, lots of hardcore, you know, stances. And then, you know, I think it was a Tuesday, they went back to the negotiating table and basically 
within four hours, they handshake a tentative agreement. And so we went from, you know, basically UPS not offering anything and then us taking all these hard lines and then, you know, basically, you know, three or four days before, you know, August, you know, before August 1st, you handshake an agreement and get it out as soon as possible. So you think he wasn't intending to ever go out on strike? No, I don't think, you know, I think it was all, you know, like political theater. I think that's exactly what it was. I, I don't think there was, you know, any resolve to strike. I think what he was trying to do was give the, you know, um, give his persona of his willingness to strike, but knowing that he was going to push it as far as he could and then handshake a tentative agreement. So that's, I mean, it's different, but not too different from what Hoffa used to do. Well, I mean, pr pretty similar. And then you, you got to look at the, you know, the strategy and, you know, basically, you know, he's, he's come up through the ranks, you know, him, you know, both Sean O'Brien and Fred Zuckerman are, are very seasoned union officials. I mean, they're part of that mm -hmm. bureaucracy, right? And so the rank and file committee stance on this is, is basically we have given up the most leverage we have ever had going into contractual negotiations. We just came through a pandemic, you know, things didn't change for the UPS worker. You know, there was many UPS workers that, you know, unfortunately lost their life during that. I mean, the world shut down around us, but we didn't shut down. We were, we were deemed those, you know, essential workers. And right. so, you know, when you're going into negotiations, it's it's always and with your history of this, it's always a matter of leverage, you know. And so, if you can't get what the membership, you know, has pushed for, what those demands are, or get somewhere close to it, then you you haven't done, you know, your job. Basically, you had you had 97 percent strike authorization. The whole entire membership was behind you. You pushed UPS as far as people thought you were going to push them. But at the end of it, you know, but three days left to go and you walk out the door and then you handshake a tentative agreement. The ball was in their court. And so, you know, I think there was much more, you know, to get on this on this deal, there there was a lot more on the table that we should have went after, and you know that's the reason the rank and file committee is you know we we took our stance you know we we had a you know a list of demands and um, those came from all across the country, and you know basically we didn't we didn't get close to to what the membership needed. Whether that be you know starting pay, more hours, you know air, you know a big a big selling point of this contract was air conditioning in the vehicles. Well, that's not going to happen. That's going to happen with the purchase of new vehicles after 2024. What about yeah? The ones I saw that, that spreading that in 2024, the new ones, not right. the old ones. Right, and so you know how many of these guys that have been driving for years are even going to see one? of those new air conditioned vehicles. I mean, we just right. lost another, uh, another, you know, teamster, you know, I think down in Texas, Ten, 
Tennessee, uh, maybe, or no, maybe it might it have was, been Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, those those things are are hot boxes. I mean, you see these feeder. Mm-hmm. I mean, these um, package car drivers all the time. They do the, they put the temperature gauge in the truck, and um, you know, you're talking about you know 120, 125, 130 degrees. Same thing with the with the aircraft that sit on the tarmac that you know are sitting in the middle of the sun. Right. Um, or any of those individuals that are that are driving those tugs around. I mean, you know, we, we just came off some some pretty intense heat across the south. And so let me let me ask you this. This may require some speculation, but you may know the answer to this. So for years, Amazon has been one of the targets. Right. Absolutely. And I know that O'Brien ran in part and I, at least I remember this from the convention, I believe. Amazon had a history of raising the wage, the starting wage to just above the Teamster contract for the logistics side or the warehouse side. And I recall from the, I think it was the 2013 contract maybe, that they were like a dollar or $2 more per hour for starting in the Amazon warehouses. And... So I'm guessing with the new contract, they're at least at par, at least until Amazon raises their wages again. I'm wondering if part, and this is a speculative part, if O'Brien and Zuckerman got the contract so now they could tout it with Amazon workers until such time as Amazon raises theirs again and just got it over that threshold to say, okay, now we can use something in Amazon. Well, and, sure. You know, they, you know, they have, you know, definitely mention that i mean the target is on amazon right um and i would say that's you know good positioning um you know by the teamsters but you know if, if you if you meet you know that that wage let's just say you know it's 21 dollars an hour and they amazon guys are making 19 or 20 dollars an hour you know is that enough to get those guys to jump ship is that enough to you know basically unionize the entire you know, membership of Amazon. And, you know, that's, that's another thing where the rank and file, you know, if that's your target, then you should have pushed UPS for the, for the richest, you know, contract you could have gotten. I mean, you're three days shy of, of basically crossing the line, you know, just, you know, with uh, gross national product. I mean, where, you know, UPS is six or uh, 7% in GNP domestically, 2% globally. And so, the, they had a lot on the line, the continuation of service with customers. Uh, right. UPS likes to acknowledge that efficiency rating, and they want to keep that efficiency rating. So, you know, what we felt was that there was more on the table. You know, if you want to break through in this industry, then you got to break through. It, the logistics industry is not going anywhere. Um, on sale, um, Online sales will continue to climb this is not going away. I mean, this is, this is, you know, the, the modern day, you know, global economy. I mean, you, you look something up on your computer, whether it be Amazon or, or any other, you know, retail provider, you know, you get what you want, you hit enter, your card's already loaded in there. And, you know, one of the carriers, whether it be us, FedEx, you know, Amazon, we're going to get it to you. And so, there's a, there's a certain price you have to pay for that. It's just like, you know, next day air. You're going to pay more for next day air than, you know, two-day air or just regular ground delivery, which is three to seven days. And so, 
you know, the workers that, that, you know, basically perform all this work morning, noon, and night, they need to be compensated, you know, for their efforts. And that's where the committee, you know, thinks that the IBT, you know, fell short. We think that there was more on the table. We think that, you know, basically the, the strike stance that the IBT leadership took was no more than, you know, political theater. And, you know, they basically fell short on, on a lot of different issues. So this is a five-year contract, right? Yes. Are you hearing enough anger out there where it's going to, it's going to stay relevant for the next five years, or do you think it's going to just die out? Well, I, you know, I think anytime, you know, the, the, the year leading up to the contract, there's, there's a lot of talk. And so people start, you know, trying to figure, trying to figure out, you know, what is going to be, you know, on the table. They're trying to figure out what their life is going to look like for the next five years. And so, you know, what we have seen with the rank and file committee is, you know, there, there's an extreme, there's an extreme amount of people that are kind of hyper aware of how these contracts negotiations go now. There's been too many sellouts for too long. And so it's, it's just more of the same. And so, you know, with the rank and file committee, you know, we have, you know, we're, we're listening to, to, uh, you know, that array of emotion, like, you know, we're listening to all the, you know, the, the people that were involved in the vote no campaign, you know, they're, they're, they're reaching out, we're, we're fielding phone calls, we're fielding emails. And, you know, the, the sentiment out there is, you know, hey, we've, we've been sold down the river once again, but you know, that's, that's what you're going to get with this type of bureaucracy. I mean, we see it over and over and over again, where, you know, basically these contracts are, you know, number one, they fall short of members' demands. And number two, it's much more of the same. And so, you know, these our rank and file committee is, is very much aware of that. And so we understand that in order for true change to occur, you know, within all these, you know, within the IBT and the bureaucratic leadership is, you know, the change has to come from within. It has to come from the rank and file. Well, let me ask you, and this is kind of interesting. TDU used to be very critical of the Hoffa regime and what was going on and the negotiations, et cetera. They've been somewhat quiet. I go to them looking for articles and stuff like that to post on the website. They have not been critical at all of the contract or O'Brien, which is kind of surprising. But that seemed to be the largest militant group in terms of, you know, taking on Teamster leadership until recently. What is the answer in terms of if you're a rank and filer and upset with the bureaucracy, how do you organize or, you know, you say change from within, but that group seems to be part of the establishment now. Well, well correct it, me if I'm wrong, by the way, I'm just you know, like think, looking from the outside in. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, TDU was, you know, heavy supporters of, of the Zuckerman um, slate when, when he ran for our president, president against often. So, you know, what, what we see here is, you know, basically all these different groups basically getting in line with new leadership. You know, it's it's very much how the locals did. You know, you had, a, you know, 162 locals, you know, across the country that, you know, voted unanim- unanimously to endorse this contract. 
absolutely no opposition. And, you know, that that's what you get with, um, you know, with this kind of, you know, union leadership as if, you know, if there's any opposing force out there, then they're going to try to snuff it out as quickly as possible. And so what you get within the, these locals is, you know, is everybody's jockeying for position. You know, they're either, you know, trying to, you know, move their way up, uh, you know, through local leadership, get on different committees and, you um, you know that that's how the that's how the IBT is is basically run. Right. Were you around in the carry years? You know, I wasn't. You know, I, okay. I came I came just after that. But you know, I have a lot of uh, coworkers. You know that you know experienced you know that strike back in '97. Yeah. Well, it was interesting when Kerry first took office. He cleaned out a lot of locals, and then when Hoffa came in, he cleaned it out in the opposite direction. I haven't seen anything, at least online, that that's happened now. But when you talk about the politics within the locals and the jockeying and stuff like that. Yeah, and it's, it's not happening, happening because you have, you know, you have very much of the same. You know, um, the, the leadership of the IBT currently, you know, had, you know, has a long history, you know, within locals across the country, committees. They've worked their way up. They won an election, and what we're getting is just you know much much more of the same. I mean, you know the the you know what they addressed and and basically beat their chests on was you know the end of tier wages. Well, if you look at UPS from you know warehouse uh, workers or what they consider inside workers to drivers. You know, the difference between the ground and the air district, there's all kinds of tiers going on, you know, even with these new hires that are, are getting ready to, you know, walk in the door. That's another tier. You know, their raises are not going to be in accordance with the people, you know, that were there before these guys get hired. Um, oh, that's interesting. So I thought that the, the two tiers or three tiers or whatever went away with the new contract. They didn't? No. No, absolutely, absolutely not. Huh. What the what, what the tiered wage system was, and what they were absolutely talking about, was the twenty two four drivers that were created in two thousand eighteen, and so basically that was kind of a hybrid driver that was going to be making less than you know top rate full time drivers, package car drivers, and so what the package car you know guys thought was you know hey we're creating you know a a new type of worker that's going to be doing the same type of work for less money. Um, and so, you know, tiered wages, you know, still goes on. There's many centers across the country. When you take a full-time job, your, your pay gets frozen for four years. So think about being in a job in a part-time position for 10, 12, 15, 20 years. And then all the time, all of a sudden you get an opportunity to go full-time and then your pay is frozen for four years. Can you go back for a second? What is a 22-4? Is it 22 hours, four days a week? or No, a 22-4 driver was basically a, a new type of package car driver that they basically got put into the 2018 contract. And, and there was a different wage structure there. And so 
at the end of their progression, they were going to be paid considerably less than, you know, what a regular 22-3 package car driver was going to be making. And so what it created was, you know, a, a package car driver that was performing essentially the same duties but making less money. Okay. Now, that has gone away in the new contract or no? You know, for the most part, they, they do say it has gone away in the contract. But still, you know, the, the starting wage, you know, for a driver, I think now is uh, about $23 an hour. Okay. So it's a, sounds like it's quite a bit less than the rest of the media is talking about. Sure. It is quite a bit less, you know. And, you know, that's the thing when you when you kind of, you know, dive into um, the specifics of, you know, how many of those workers are, are, are making top rate? How many of those workers are going to have the ability to draw a full pension? You know, I, I think the, the numbers on, on people with, you know, 15 or 20 years service in, in UPS are, you know, I think they're below 30,000. And so the majority of your work, once again, is done by those individuals with, you know, one to five years. Right. So you're you're saying out of the three hundred and forty, three hundred and fifty thousand, there's less than thirty thousand that are fifteen or higher years, right? Somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. You know, they're they're never gonna hand over the complete specifics of how many, you know, package car drivers are making top rate. And but that is something that they market and they campaign themselves on over and over again. Right. I mean that's that's been touted in the media, you know, for the last couple of weeks or at least earlier in the month is like all over the press, you know, UPS sure. guys are making up to $170,000. Right. And that, you know, some of them might well be doing that, but I mean, they're working, uh, you know, a lot of overtime. They're probably, you know, um, you know, fifth, you know, fifth and sixth punches a lot of those times. Fifth and sixth you know, punches. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, there was four, six punches there for a little while. So, you know, package car guys were routinely doing, you know, a minimum of 50 hours a week. Oh, okay. And, and a lot of them were being forced into a sixth punch. And so, you know, yes, were a lot of those guys, you know, making, you know, a pretty decent wage? Absolutely. But they've been there a long time. And um, that that's not representative of all of them. I mean, not every package car guy out there our every UPS worker is getting $170,000 worth of pay and benefits a year. It's, right. it's, it's just, it's a falsehood. It's a completely false statement. And so, you know, that's where committees like ours get involved is, is, you know, we, we look at the, uh, the true, you know, labor environment of, of what's going on, you know, across the board in different locals in different regions. And, you know, we, we try to be representative of all the membership, not just a few. Let me ask you, this kind of comes back to my question a few minutes ago. With TDU, and I'm, I'm going to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'm just going to say it, seemingly becoming part of the establishment. And you've got the rank and file committee that is not, it sounds like it's, you don't necessarily have a presence like the TDU does. You've got connections all over the place. Is there any kind of structure or like, do you guys have a website or like, is it all grassroots? You know, a lot of it at this point, you know, is, um, is a, is a 
grassroots group. But I mean, many of our groups, whether it be on social media or you know reaching out to to other locals across the nation, you know it's it's growing tremendously. And um, you know, as far as a opposition force, you know, to the you know bureaucratic establishment of the IBT, I mean, the rank and file committee, you know, is there. I mean, we will be a force moving moving forward. There's no question about it. You know, the the biggest you know obstacles you know in front of us right now are probably just you know fielding phone calls and and emails and things of that nature. But as far as, you know, social media platforms that have, have linked up together, you know, our numbers are growing and they're they're growing consistently day by day and week by week. And so that, you know, I think, you know, we we are going to be presenting ourselves as as a strong opposing force to the bureaucracy moving forward. Well, and I guess my question related to that is do you have a structure in place? Do you have like, again, like a website, that sort of thing? And is it one where you need to do that in order for people to come to support, sign up with, et cetera? Well, we, we have a, you know, an email uh, right now. That right. Is kind of, kind of uh, how everybody is reaching out to us currently. And so, you know, that's, that's worked for, for right now. You know, a lot of us have, you know, our own, social media sites to where there's, you know, groups that have, you know, 30, 40, 50 members to groups that have thousands of members. And so we're networked heavily with them, but, you know, the, the opposition is going to continue to grow, um, whether it be in the IBT or the UAW or any of these bureaucratic leadership that continually sells out its workforce. You know, there there is a changing of the guard that is coming and it's coming from within because, you know, people are, are very aware of, of what uh, is going on right now. And they're becoming more and more aware every single day. And so there's, there's a complete understanding that with a lot of these huge unions that have been, you know, offering concessionary contracts for, for decades that, you know, the membership is tired of it. I mean, we're, we're completely sick and tired of, um, you know, the handshakes and the smiles to our faces, but, you know, the minute our backs are turned, you know, that we're, you know, basically, you know, getting hit from behind. I mean, let's just think about how negotiations, you know, took place with, um, you know, the IBT. There was NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. Well, if you have to do anything in secret, Peter, then obviously you don't want anybody knowing what you are doing. Yeah, the backroom any, deals. Yeah, backroom deals. Any any time you're representing, you know, a large number of people. And these people are basically paying dues and paying your salaries. And then, you know, you're going to look them in the eye, shake their hand and say, oh, just trust me. But, you know, we have a non-disclosure agreement and nobody can talk about it. All these, all these, you know, negotiations should have been live streamed. You know, uh, we have the technology today to, you know, basically give individuals the ability to listen to what the issues are. 
And if you're if you're negotiating and you're a great negotiator, then then why is there any hesitancy in doing that? You know, if I'm going to walk in the room and, and sit down with a member of, you know, labor relations within UPS management, you know, basically I'm going to, you know, dive in into what the demands of, of the membership is. And, you know, there's nothing to hide there. You know, these grievances are, are coming from people that are, you know, tired of, you know, basically being beaten down by these huge multinational corporations where it's, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's, an, it's a, a form of just such extreme capitalism um, that, you know, is basically, you know, voraciously eating out the middle class. It's eroding the, the middle class of, of America. You know, there's, there's, there's a form of socialism for these huge corporations that they're operating under, and they're getting tremendous amounts of dollars, whether it be from, you know, the government or, you know, um, you know, protections. There's been bailouts for big banks. There's, you know, there's all these protections for these huge corporations. Well, who's who's protecting the, you know, the, the everyday working man and woman? And, and that's a, that's a huge, huge problem. Well, what what you're talking about is with respect to the, you know, changing of how negotiations works, the NDA, things like that. Like I'm going through the list of unions in my head. They're kind of standard practice for unions to negotiate behind closed doors. You know, very few do it out in the open. And what you're talking about is almost a sea change in the labor relations model. And which kind of brings me back to, yeah, there's UAW workers that, you know, they elected Sean Fain, you know, of course, O'Brien's kind of, to me, he's kind of old school in terms of, you know, Boston local, et cetera. And then I come back to like the TDU, I've watched them for 25 or more years. Every time they try to make a change, they would get beaten down, so to speak, in the elections. And, and they had a structure. And it's almost as though, and of course, if you were to put together a structure, that also runs the risk of later on becoming just another part of the establishment. But without that grassroots binding together, as in terms of, and I'm, I'm saying website, but it doesn't really matter, but some sort of structure where there is something that the grassroots can go to, it, I, would, I would think that it's the emails or the Facebook pages or whatever, it's not going to be successful because that machine is always going to be able to tamp it down. Does that make sense? Yeah, to, to a point, you know, but you, you have to, you know, you have to check the pulse of, of the membership. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like a temperature gauge, you know, where, you know, where is that gauge at currently? Well, it's getting ready to blow. And the reason for that is, is concessionary contracts all across the board. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know, if it's the IBT or the UAW or the dock workers or the, you know, actors and, and, and um, film recording artists. Um, this is a, you know, this is a problem that is occurring not, not only in the United States, but it's occurring internationally as well. And so, you know, people are starting to network together. We're as connected as we've we've ever been. You know, you can get in touch with anybody with 
um, you know, a Twitter, simple, yeah. yeah, yeah, Twitter, Instagram, what have you. And so all these networks are being created right now. And, you know, they, they've been created for some time. And so, you know, I, I think that moving forward, you know, especially, um, you know, just just from our perspective is there's a growing movement. You know, it is going to escalate in both scope and size. And, you know, in five years, you know, there's there's going to be a new player in the game. And this is not just the committee within UPS. This is going to be all, you know, committees within the UAW. Um, this is going to be committees within the dock workers. I mean, there's going to be committees all over. There's there's going to be a new player in the game. When, and that when play, you say play, new player, that's singular. Like, it's almost going back to the IWW days, right? Just a single union. Is that what you mean by that? Well, not necessarily just a, a single union. There's going to be new players in the game. And, you know, these committees have been getting established over quite some time now. Um, you know, I, I think that we've seen how the, the UPS contract is rolled out. We are about to see how the UAW contract is is getting ready to roll out. They're gonna they're gonna take their cues uh, from the Teamsters. It's gonna it's gonna be very probably much you know like the UPS Teamsters you know negotiation. And so you know it's been kind of like a uh, a season of strikes. And uh, although you know no real strikes occurred. You know, they're they're basically being, you know, the the will of the membership is is being squashed, and so you know that's where these committees basically really start to to take shape. Is is we understand that you know the the demands that we are basically in, ex, expressing to our leadership are, are it's not being met, and you know I think you're going to see I think you're going to see a movement. And um, that movement is is be is beginning to take shape, and it's been taking shape for quite some time. But you're you're definitely going to see a transformative process, you know, across a lot of different industries. Let me kind of to that end, and I don't know if you can answer this question, but and I'm I'm trying to figure out the different groups out there. There's WSWS, which is World Socialist website. There's the DSA, and then there's the Jacobins, and there's a whole bunch of smaller groups out there. I've noticed in the last few years the DSA has become very active in helping organize the unions, Starbucks Workers Union, and CPUSA was involved, I think, in the Amazon Union. And there's all these different factions out there, but it seems as though, and I don't know who hates who and all that sort of stuff, but I know that there's some discord and I want to say, I may be wrong on this, like WSWS has blasted the DSA, for example, or it might have been the Jacobin has blasted the DSA or somebody, like there's all these different groups out there that are not necessarily getting along. And I, you may not even know the answer to this, but I'm just like, as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking about all the various articles I've seen and, you know, this group's a sellout and this one's not. And, you know, it's just kind of, I'm puzzled by the, you know, if there's an undercurrent, if there's one group or another group that's involved with it or everybody's just 
mesh together. Is that an unfair question? I, I'm asking for speculation, but I wasn't sure if you knew or not. Well, I mean, any anytime we get into speculation, uh, I mean, obviously there's always going to be, you know, difference of uh, opinions or um, different different sources that have, you know, opposing opinions moving forward. But, you know, the the real the real change, you know, will will always come from from rank and file members. That's where the change has to occur. And, you know, I would I would say, you know, a lot of those, you know, different entities that you, you spoke about, you know, are are supporting, you know, different factions, but the true change will, will come from the rank and file. Right. Well, and I guess my my related question to that is there's got to be some form of structure. Otherwise, the machine I don't care if it's the union machine, you know, bureaucracy or the corporate bureaucracy tamps it down. And, you know, similar to TDU and the old guard, that's probably an unfair term for O'Brien, but, you know, they have now teamed up and now they're the machine. And again, I'm outside in just kind of watching all this happen, which is a fascinating time, by the way. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, I I think, uh, you know, if, if you take the last several months, even going back to the um, the railroads, right. you know, where the, the, the Teamsters were involved in that. And then, it, you know, the deadline kind of kept getting pushed up. And then, you know, basically, um, you know, there's legislature that's put forward to, you know, basically prohibit the, their ability to strike. You know, that kind of, you know, worked its way into um, UPS, the right, the writers, um, you know, we just had the situation with, with yellow freight, um, you know, to where there was, you know, there was kind of a, uh, a stalemate between the management and the IBT there. And then we, we have, you know, 22,000 drivers that, that have lost their job. Now we're getting ready to go into the UAW, you know, whose membership has, you know, eroded from about 750,000 to 150,000 in the last few decades. Um, we have the big, you know, green initiative or the, you know, electric vehicle initiative, which is going to, you know, reduce, you know, their, their labor numbers somewhere by 30 to 40%, depending upon who who you're listening to. So, right. You know, these concessionary deals can't, you know, can't stand, you know, this has been going on far too long, Peter. I mean, you, you can go back to NAFTA and GATT in, in the in the middle '90s um, to where you know jobs were basically shipped overseas. You know that was you know bureaucratic you know control within the Washington establishment, both sides of the aisle. You know you had a a Democratic president and a Republican you know House and Senate, and so these these sellouts that are are being conducted and these concessions that are being conducted by these. Um, leaders of these unions. I mean, they just can't continue to to go on. Um, they can't continue to move forward because you know at, at the end of the at the end of the day, what are what are we what are we protecting? You know what are what are they what are they actually protecting? I mean, if you're not going to protect the membership, then well, then then what is your future going to look like? It's interesting. I did an article a long long time ago where a lot of the issues that many, well, at least several of the unions have had to encounter came from 
the deregulation during the Carter era. And so like the Teamsters, for example, the Motor Carrier Act, because you mentioned yellow a few minutes ago, that was due to the Motor Carrier Act, which was signed into law in 1980. And I believe there was about 500 companies that were part of the National Master Freight Agreement, and Yellow was one of the last of the biggies. Uh, it may have been the last. I think ABF is still part of it. But, you know, I've, I've remembered over the years as all these trucking companies have closed down, my industry that I came out of, which was telecom, that was due to Harold Green busting up the Ma Bell system, in, which was like 83, but he was a Carter appointee. And then, of course, the deregulation of the airline industry. And the, the whole thing with that was to make it cheaper for the consumers, you know, to deregulate because it was back in the 70s just regulating everybody to death. There's another industry I'm missing. Railroad industry was deregulated, I think, in, as part of the administration back then. But, you know, on the one hand, we have, you know, you can jump on a Spirit air, airplane at 50 bucks and travel, you know, halfway across the country. Whereas in the old days, it was a couple thousand for business travelers. You know, it's kind of that, is there a happy medium in there? You know, the working class is taking it on the chin, but there's, we've also developed into a consumer class. Of course, the jobs have been shipped overseas and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, I don't know if that's purely government or, you know, what the, what the solution is, I guess. But. Well, I mean, you know, you're 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 facing a lot of different, you know, the workers are facing a lot of different fronts. Right. I mean, they're 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 facing the the Washington establishment, both sides of the aisle. You know, tremendous amount of you know manufacturing jobs have been shipped, you know, overseas the last several decades. I think I think I read somewhere one time, like after World War II, you know, the United States basically controlled 80% of the manufacturing and 50% of the energy production. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. uh, And, um, you know, somewhere along the line there, you know, I I think uh, what has happened is, is, you know, politicians, you know, political, you know, establishments, uh, unions, you know, they have been bought and paid for. And, um, you know, we're, we're, watching basically the the selling of you know our souls for for money and um you know that's it, it's a sad predicament to see because there there has to be some kind of formulation of um you know what you consider that a happy medium but you know you have to give the the people the ability to survive and make a living at the end of the day that's what most people want most people you know especially in this country want a couple things you know they want to be left alone and they want to have the ability to um go to work make a living raise their families take care of themselves and go on about their day but what is effectively happening is you know these individuals are losing that ability and you see and you see it on you know the the face of people you know all the time i mean if you're if you ever just sit around and watch people you know there's there's a lot of strain out there i mean you can see it in people's faces and um you know they're 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 up against a lot of different things you know whether that you know being absolutely taxed to death or um you know 
conditions at work, you know, basically feeling um, like um, they're being forgotten about. Uh, and so, you know, the sentiment is building within, you know, the working class that, you know, hey, you know, this has got to change. It's got to stop. We, we, we have to come together. And I mean, you know, I think you've kind of, you know, spoken about, you know, structure needing to be built. And I think that structure is being built currently. You know, I think there, there's more and more people understanding that, you know, they're looking at the world they live in currently. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't recognize it anymore. Are there, they're just uncertain, you know, you know, how it is basically effectively operating now because it's getting harder and harder to survive and there's no end in sight, you know, in this country. I mean, if we, if we continue just to roll the printing press, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, the inflationary um, situation that we see ourselves in now, I mean, there's no end in sight, Peter. Yeah. That's, that's the one thing. And, you don't hear about it too much in DC, but yeah, they've been printing money for, I want to say since 2008, at least. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think, I think, you know, the, the country is, you know, $32 trillion in debt, yep. 150 trillion in unfunded liabilities across the board. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of different things going on in the world right now that, um, you know, they're, there's change on, on the horizon. And so, you know, I think we need to be very conscious of, of what that change is going to look like, especially in this country. And, you know, I got an argument with a, with an individual the other day on social media and, you know, we were, we were talking about inflationary numbers and the economics of the contract. And, you know, I think his, you know, response to me, well, you can't, you know, blame, you know, uh, companies for, you know, the inflationary state that we find ourselves in. And, uh, you know, my response was, no, I'm not going to blame them. But if I'm negotiating a contract with them, then that's definitely going to be taken into perspective by the people that I'm representing. You know, it's, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with these negotiations, I mean, it's, it's very much, you know, the climate that you're living in, you know, that's why the rank and file committee, you know, of UPS feels so strongly um, you know, when we, when we decided to put out the, you know, the no vote and it was because we felt like we had the maximum amount of leverage, um, because of the conditions we find ourselves in. If you think for a minute that the company's not going to take, you know, advantage of some sort of leverage, then you're sadly mistaken. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, the conditions that you're talking about with the middle class has been going on for 40 years, maybe, or more. I mean, you know, in part, you mentioned World War II. I read an article and had a conversation a long time ago where industrial might of the United States was a direct result of World War II. And through the 50s and 60s, it was as a result of the rest of the world having, the industrial base of the world having been, you know, bombed to smithereens. And so where we started to see that decline is as the rest of the world started coming online, Germany, Japan, you know, all these other industrial countries brought it, bringing back their industry. We started seeing the imports coming into the United States and there was a great article. Um, and I want to say it was in the seventies is, you know, you can see it on PDF on online about 
the great steel strike of 1959, how that started steel produce or steel consumers here in the United States buying foreign steel, which eventually wound up decimating the steel industry here in the U.S. And it's, you know, it's almost, it's like a cause and effect. Of course, talked about a little bit the, the deregulation in the various industries. And, you know, watching that middle class that used to have great wages, great benefits, and then you have monetary policy where they're just printing money and that's making your the dollar you earn not worth as much. It's like a whole host of different things coming in. Yeah, yeah. And I, mean, I don't, I don't have an answer for it. Is it, you know, I'm, so I, I lean more libertarian, like small L libertarian. So I'm like, yeah, the government, which is the cause of a lot of these problems, should not be the solution. But then some of this is policy related. You know, the Federal yeah. Reserve, should they be printing as much money? Yeah, I mean, these, these are all, you know, all, all valid questions, but I mean, we, we find ourselves in the predicament we, we do today. I mean, it's almost like, uh, you know, it's almost like there's a, you know, a controlled demolition going on in, in this country right now. And right. Um, you, you basically, you're seeing it, you know, the, the continual printing of money. I mean, what are we doing right now, you know, with, with the current administration, you know, what's going on right now with that leadership? I mean, you know, the energy prices, um, right. you know, the, you know, the mass amount of regulations that are, that are, you know, being put on, you know, industry, you know, no, I mean, <laughs> we need jobs, we need good paying jobs. And I mean, one way would that could occur is if you, you know, basically allowed us to, you know, regain our energy independence. And, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's the role, you know, of, um, you know, government to, to some point is to unlock the ability, you know, of the working class to make money. And it seems like they're, they're, they're going the other way. And um, I think that's where, you know, a lot of these rank and file committees will, you'll, you'll start to see more and more people voice their opposition. Um, you know, to what is currently going on. Well, and this is not to get into politics, but a lot of it stems from politics or, or goes towards politics. But, you know, you've got the, if you go in one direction, you're getting screwed on that end. You go the other, you're getting screwed on the other end. It's like, where does the working class go? Not even just the working class. You know, you talk to small business owners, they're in the same boat. And it's, sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think I read somewhere the other day that, um, you know, with the 500 days of lockdowns we had during COVID, 3,300 businesses got, you know, closed down. And that's not to mention the businesses that were, you know, just trying to, you know, start up at that time. So oh, I would think it's a lot more than that. Sure. And, and they're, you know, they're closing more and more every day. I mean, you're seeing stuff closed right. down, you know. Um, and so... You know, that, that's why it's so Im important, you know, for these rank and file, you know, committees to, to get their message out there is because, you know, we, we need to, you know, catch that momentum um, that, that is going on, you know, right now. And, um, you know, we have to transcend that into a better overall picture for the, the industries that, that we find ourselves working in. Um, 
you know, the, the concessionary, you know, ideology of, um, you know, a lot of these union, these union structures that, that are, are leading the way right now. They just can't, they just can't, it just can't continue. I mean, people can't continue to be forced to work, you know, more and more jobs, more and more hours with, without any type of compensation that is, you know, just justifiable. You know, I always, you know, I always go back to the economics and the purchasing power. And that's what we really have to, you know, start focusing on. You know, that's, that's one thing you, you never see, you know, unions, you know, get up in a meeting and say, okay, the, this is the wage structure, you know, that we're going after. And this is, you know, this is what your dollar's worth today. And this is, you know, if inflation stays the same, this is what it's going to look like in five years. And that's, that's something that we really have to, you know, pay attention to. You can't just look at the number for today. You got to look at the, the climate of the economy and you have to look at the purchasing power of the dollar and what that means for you, not only on a weekly basis, monthly basis, yearly basis, and then into your years of retirement, because if it continues to get eroded, then what happens? You know, if, if people, if people don't have the ability to retire, or take care of themselves in retirement, then, then what happens then? Yeah, I think we're facing not just that issue, but we're also looking at, you know, demographic shifts where there's fewer and fewer kids being born and more and more aged population. And at some point, we're going to cross a threshold where there's not enough workers in the workforce to be able to afford the amount of monies that are going out in entitlements like Social Security. We've been hearing that for years, but it's like getting almost critical. Not quite yet, but it soon will be. And yeah, yeah. You know, part of this, absolutely. Part of this, and I'm not going to go down this tangent because we'll be on for another couple hours. But you know, I've been watching this AI emerge, and if they can't figure out a way to tax the machine, then we're going to be in a world of hurt because that's going to displace a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of these new technologies that that are going to be coming out, especially as it relates to AI, you know, people are going to find themselves without jobs, and then you know what what happens to those those people? Right. I mean, you know, the the um, you know, from what I'm just been you know reading about the you know the electric vehicle, you know the you know, all the, the parts producers that, you know, basically the, all these, you know, tier one suppliers that basically produce for, you know, the big three. I mean, when, when the batteries go, uh, the electric vehicle, when, when there's nothing but electric vehicles out there, I mean, you're going to lose, you know, half your workforce. Right. And then the implementation of machines, AI, I mean, in analytics and, and data gathering and any type of, of services, I mean, you're, you know, you're you're seeing it all across the board. I mean, I've seen it at UPS. I've I've seen the uh, the, the um, driverless you know vehicles, and they're working on you know the driverless you know semi. And so, a lot of these these jobs are going to be you know in the line of fire to be taken over you know by by this this new wave of te- technology that's definitely on the horizon. Pause on that for a second. If UPS is developing driverless semis and package cars, I don't know how they can do that with a package car. At least, you know, how do they get the the box from the truck to the door? But on the semis, 
I know the Teamsters have been very active in California, keeping trying to keep the trucks off the highways, the uh, autonomous trucks off the highways. Why wasn't that an issue in negotiations if, if UPS is working on that as well? Like, I didn't you know, see anything about that. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen anything about it, you know, either. I have seen, you know, um, different articles. I mean, there's there's a whole slew of, of companies in, involved in, you know, autonomous vehicles. Right. I think you could probably even see that, you know, at the airports. I mean, that could that could transition into, into planes, um, you know, in the, basically the equipment that runs around airports. Um, so, right. I mean, there's a lot of these, you know, things that are on the horizon that, that need to be addressed and they need to be addressed quickly. When you have the developers of this type of technology, you know, basically stating that, Hey, you know, we need to get a handle on this or, you know, it, you know, has the ability to, you know, make, you know, substantial um, gains in regards to displacing jobs in the workforce. Um, you know, I think that's something that we really need to, you know, dive into and take a closer look at is, you know, how is this going to affect us moving forward? Right. Yeah. I don't think enough people are doing that. They're talking about, you know, AI discriminating and talking about, you know, kind of scratching the surface, but they're really not talking about the displacement issues starting to, but not how do you replace the income tax that the workers are paying to support your government? Exactly. So. Exactly. Well, Jay, we've been on for well over an hour and a half, and I, I, I could talk to you all night because this is a fascinating conversation, but I'm not sure we're going to have too many listeners sticking on. I got you. Why don't we wrap this up? I, I appreciate you coming on, and I would love to talk to you again because it's a fascinating conversation. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, whether it be my, myself or, you know, maybe a, a different member of the rank and file, but, you know, I, I would be um, glad to come on again and, and touch, you know, some of these topics or maybe some topics that uh, we didn't dive into uh, tonight. But I, sure. I greatly appreciate you reaching out and um, giving us the ability and the platform to, to get our message out. Well, I'll tell and, you, you're, you know, is WSWS.org is the the few or maybe the only place I saw anything digging into the realities or the the under the covers, so to speak, in terms of what was in the contract or what well, is in the contract. Absolutely. I mean, they uh, they have, you know, some very, very talented journalists over there that, um, you know, I think they, you know, they, they think deeply, you know, about the situation and they, they try to, you know, give their readers a, a view of the big picture. And I right. think, you know, in order to dive into, you know, any topic, you got to have both sides. And, um, you know, if you don't have any, you know, opposing forces, then, then basically, you know, that, that gives way to only one, one thought process, right? You know, it gives way to a lot of things. It, it gives way to, you know, just kind of tyrannical leadership. And we, we find ourselves looking at that in a lot of different areas, not, you know, government, trade unions, you know, there's, there's almost these forces at work with, within the, the bureaucratic structure of, of these entities that if there's no opposing force, then there's no limit 
to what they'll be able to do moving forward. And you have to have an opposition. And that is um, true. You know, any, any time you have, you know, nothing but consensus, you know, um, raining down, um, you know, look out because, um, you know, there, there are waves of, you know, people and organizations that all they want is ultimate control. And uh, we have to be very vigilant in our fight against any force that wants to completely control us. And with that, we should probably wrap up because that is an excellent wrapping up point. Well, thanks once again, Peter. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for coming on Labor Relations Radio. All right. Have a good night. So that was Jay, a rank-and-file Teamster member who works for UPS and sharing some of the information that we are not seeing in the mainstream media. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List, and as always, I'm going to leave some links under the audio portion of this episode. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. You can give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.